Welcome everybody to today's episode of the Seven Figures Club podcast. And today, my friends, we've got an international flavor for you with international entrepreneur, Ryan Margoline. He is CEO of Professional Hair Labs, and he set out on a journey to help create the world leading product in cosmetic bonding when his mother was poisoned by harmful chemicals in the hair adhesive products commonly used in the industry and inspired to keep the same thing from happening to anybody else. His family dove into the research and created their first hair care product free of harmful substances. Now, fast forward 20 years later, and Ryan is an international business leader and entrepreneur who works in more than 15 different countries. There, he helps create sustainable services and products in industries full of subpar and even harmful options. With the help of Ryan's expertise in effectively taking concepts and formulating strategies for success in multiple different industries, as well as his flexibility, clarity, and dedication to putting people first, Professional Hair Labs has expanded its manufacturing tenfold and grown to become one of the 500 fastest growing companies in the US over the last five years. And it's sold more than $50 million in product globally. Guys, if you want to become an international entrepreneur and learn how to globally grow your brand, you're going to want to take some notes today. Ryan, welcome to the show. There are over 32 million businesses in the US and over 90% of them will never break seven figures in annual sales. So how do we as entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs break into that seven figures club? This podcast will relentlessly share the secrets, strategies, and tactics I've used to create three multi-seven figures businesses and bring in even more successful entrepreneurs than me to share their inspirational stories and tactics to success. You can create your dream business in life right now. So buckle up and let's go. Thanks very much for having me, Leo. All righty. Well, we usually like to start these episodes off with hearing a little bit more about your background and upbringing. And what was it about maybe some events in childhood that kind of led you down a path of, you know, going for independence, entrepreneurship, and, and what was that path like for you? Um, well, I think for me personally, it was just learned behavior. Um, I've always, you know, said, since I was a little kid that, you know, when I, when I was older, I wanted to work for myself. Um, I didn't know what that looked like or what that even meant at the time, but I knew ultimately I wanted to be kind of in control of my own path and having parents that were, you know, both business owners as well. Um, you know, that, that's the environment that I grew up in. So really that that's what my focus always was. And naturally over the years, I've had different jobs, you know, as an employee and stuff. And um, it's helped me refine my, my skills and my knowledge. Um, but really, um, you know, when I kind of opened my, my cape and let my wings fly, um, that's really where I started to be able to, you know, to make the mistakes that were required to, to, you know, to, to improve. Outstanding. Outstanding. So, so what was, uh, when did you first, you know, go out and do something entrepreneurial, really launch your own business, work for yourself. What was that uh, first event like? So back in 2009, um, when the, you know, when the big crash happened, um, yeah, it, it was kind of a time where I, you know, I was working in an industry that, you know, was heavily hit by the crash. Um, so I had an opportunity at that point to really reassess where I was at and what I wanted to do. So I was looking at some, you know, different options in different industries and different niches. And at that time, you know, my father had you know, this company and he was having some challenges. 
so we had some in-depth discussions about, you know, what it might look like for me to come over and, you know, take a look at the company and see, you know, how it functioned and what we could do really to improve it. Uh, he wasn't happy with the direction, basically, that it was going and that it was sitting in. Um, so after some careful thought, um, you know, it kind of decided to pack it all in. And I, I moved from Ireland to Florida um, for a wow. period of time with my wife and my daughter and spent the first few months just learning about the, you know, the business. I had always grown up in the hair replacement. My mother and father did as a business, but where, what it turned into was when my mother got chemical poisoning, uh, my dad sold the hair replacement business and he focused his attention to creating a, a safe product line for technicians and uh, hair wearers. So that's really where it all started. Um, and this was over 25 years ago. So in 2009, when I decided to take the jump and myself and my wife moved to Florida, um, we focused in for a few months. We learned a bit about the business. We saw what was what I believe was wrong at the time. And uh, we made some really fundamental changes. Uh, nothing too complicated, nothing simple or, or nothing overly complex. And we uh, stripped the whole company back, rebuilt the brand, uh, rebuilt the image, the message. And uh, we just did some really simple uh, direct mail marketing uh, campaigns and we tripled revenue in 18 months. So that kind of led us to know that, look, we have a product here that we've now validated in the industry. Um, it has international scope. Uh, so in 2011, we decided we were going to take the jump and, you know, move into Europe. And so we opened a facility in Europe. I moved back to Ireland and um, the company kind of just snowballed from there. So uh, my, my journey into entrepreneurship kind of started there. Um, you know, since then, there's been other businesses and other, you know, services that, that I've offered myself, but ultimately, where my core, you know, uh, mission and focus lies is it is within professional hair labs. So it's where we've been able to make the most impact and change the most lives. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, uh, Ryan. One thing I want to unpack for the audience, we have, you know, small business owners, entrepreneurs, startups listening to this. And you're basically sharing that in the height of the uh, Great Recession of 0809, things are difficult. And yet within 18 months, you were able to triple sales and triple revenues. What was the process of assessing where the company was at and discovering the problems? And for our listeners, like how can they sort of take a step back outside of their business and really take a look at and find problems? How did you assess and find the issues and how can kind of entrepreneurs and business owners listening maybe take a step back and do the same to identify the problems and then more importantly, you know, diagnose, hey, here are the potential solutions. Yeah, so um, we so the product line was created with the aim of solving a problem, which was, yeah. you know, safe and effective hair adhesives for individuals who experience hair loss. So they wear wigs or hair pieces. So yeah. we knew that the market was there. Um, how we assess that was, um, and, and look, I suppose as a business owner, it really depends on how, how dirty you really want to get your hands, you know, and how much work you want to actually do and how much you want to outsource. Now at the time, fortunately for me, I had all the time in the world to really get stuck in. So I took three months and I manually uh, scraped the internet and I built a database, uh, on an Excel sheet of every single hair replacement studio in the United States. So when all was said and done and we validated the addresses, um, we had about, um, I think it was about 5,000 uh, addresses to, to contact. Now, naturally, you don't want a cold call. You'd be on the phone for, for a long time. Uh, we didn't have the resources to do it. So um, we felt that the easiest way to do that was to create a direct mail uh, you know, campaign. 
So we did a simple postcard, two sides. We figured, look, we don't want to, business owners are busy. We don't want to inundate them with a bunch of information. So let's keep this really simple. First side was a design about the product, what it is and the benefits. Flip side was testimonials. And uh, we sent them out in three different batches. And for the next, you know, three to four months, we were flooded with calls every day, 50 plus calls a day. And uh, everyone wanted to try this product. Uh, what turned into one bottle is a trial order, uh, then turned into, you know, the next order being 10 bottles, 25 bottles, five bottles. And before you know it, then, you know, we were sitting in a position where, you know, we, we had quadrupled almost our, our client base and uh, we tripled revenue from that. Um, so it was a it was a really big eye opener for us because we realized that uh, you know growing a business sometimes doesn't have to be so complex. It's you know it's really the, the the simple things that work best. And if you focus on what the simple solutions are, you'll get the most impact. I think you know we as individuals and human beings we we tend to overcomplicate things, and ultimately I think it stands in our way of growth. Wow, that was such a powerful you know breakdown of what you did. So you stepped in. You looked at what's going on and then you said, well, where are our you know, strategic partners, our clients, where are our dream customers? And you just put a list of them together. And then in today's world where everybody assumes all marketing should take place online and social media marketing, the more effective route to actually connect with these you know, business owners who are going to be your clients, who you know, are going to be buying your, your product and retailing it uh, at their locations was basically to send direct mail. How big of an opportunity do you think exists within a lot of industries that people are missing with just simple direct mail campaigns? I think generally, people, you know, no, not everyone, but you often hear the thing direct mail marketing is dead. You know, uh, you know, old marketing is dead. I, I just don't I don't buy it. Um, I think there, there's room for all of it. So we, we had a very simple marketing strategy. Uh, actually, up until about three or four years ago, we actually didn't spend a dime on online marketing at all, advertising whatsoever. Um, we, we, built, we built a high seven-figure company with a purely you know, just from direct mail marketing and organic marketing. Um, we heavily invested in uh, search engine optimization at the beginning um, when we were redeveloping the brand and the site, and that still stands to us to this day. Um, you know, look, I, I, I think it's, um, I think it's highly uh, underrated the power of, uh, of, of direct mail campaigns still, uh, obviously depending on the niche, but there's still scope for it. And I, I think, you know, if you have a large database of, of, you know, of validated customers, um, why my, my question would be, why are you not at least, you know, creating a couple of campaigns, trying to offer further services that they either may not know you have or new services that you have uh, developed. Because I, I think there's much more business to be done within your current audience um, than there, you know, look, I mean, the cost of reselling to, you know, one of your current customers is a lot less than trying to acquire one now in, in this day and age. And uh, I think if you, if you really focus on that, you'll find that there is still scope there for direct loan marketing, 100%. Well said, well said, guys. And I love how you shared too, how you created that marketing postcard, right? Half of it was just the benefits. And then the other side was testimonials. And again, as humans, as business, we try to overcomplicate things with all the bells and whistles and features, but really, how is this going to help me? Benefits right there. And then on the other side, you know, give me some social proof that it actually works. 
which you did, which I think that a lot of good takeaways from that, guys, when you're putting together marketing pieces, whether it's online, direct mail, whatever it may be. Now, then as you guys are scaling and growing this here in the U.S., tripling revenues, then the next step, you guys make the decision, all right, we're going to jump from you know now the U.S. to Europe. So how in the world does business go from selling products nationally in the U.S. to selling them internationally? In this case, you expanded to Europe. Yeah, so that that's that was probably the biggest learning curve for me. So you know, we we had tripled revenue in the states, and I was thinking to myself, I you know, I got this. I can we 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 can do this, and it's all great. And I took the same principles and methodologies, and we opened in Europe, and I applied everything that I had learned over that you know over that eighteen months, and crickets fell flat Uh-oh. on my face. <laughs> and I was it had me reassessing everything at that point. I was like what am I not doing right? Or what are we not doing right? Like what has to change? And I realized there was a huge shift here for, for me uh, from a mindset perspective. I realized, you know, culturally um, business is just different in different places in the world. Oh, yeah. And what I found is that the same approach that I was using in the United States when dealing with clients, um, even sometimes cold outreaching to people, there was just, there, it wasn't as responsive. People wanted to do business in a different way. So that actually took me about another six months on top of that to really figure that out. And then we started to get some response and, you know, relationships were built and uh, that allowed us to get, you know, a few of the larger distributors on board, which then, you know, expanded the the, the, the brand recognition and, and the awareness. And ultimately that led to, you know, us being able to penetrate markets that, that we hadn't ever, you know, we had never before. So um, everywhere, every, every new country that we target, you know, we look at what do we potentially have to do to make sure that when we open these communications that it's open right, because um, it's not just as simple as reaching out to somebody and just saying, Hey, we've got this product here. Um, we think it would benefit your company. There, there's, there's, there's a whole lot more to it. And, and I just think, um, you know, each country brings its own set of challenges. No question. So, so what were some of those pivots that you made and, and stark differences in being able to connect with clients in Europe versus the U.S.? And how did you discover, you know, what, what was actually going to work in connecting up with them? Yeah. So um, one of the key things was, believe it or not, language was a huge barrier. Um, while yeah. people do, you know, while people throughout Europe, you know, predominantly speak English, um, it's, you know, if you're dealing with a lot of, you know, old school, uh, members of, of the hair replacement industry, um, they, they like to communicate in, the, in their own language. So um, I, you know, at that point, I was like, okay, we kind of either have to do one of two things. We we didn't have the resources to hire someone in Europe. We had already made a heavy investment, so I had to do all the heavy lifting myself. I just went and simply got a translation program and started communicating with people that way. Um, we redeveloped. Uh, we had our uh, marketing material. Um, all changed into different languages because um, I realized that, you know, look, once we started sending this stuff out, there was no response because people weren't reading it because they either couldn't or didn't want to put in the effort. So we made it easier for them. We created a, a small little portal where they could click the link, get all the information. And um, we knew that there was a need for it. It's just we couldn't figure out how to make that connection. And when we started to make it easier for them, we started to open up further communications. And then eventually what would happen is um, through the different trade shows, we would have different um, uh, uh, translators that would come with us. And then for the really high level important communications we were having, we kind of pushed the communication uh, in conjunction with our translator. So we made sure everything was was perfect, you know, and there was no broken uh, language there. 
Oh, I like that. I like that. So language is very important, communicating directly to them instead of, yes, everyone may speak English or they may speak some English, but you've got to get direct to them in their language, their culture. That makes a lot of sense. Now, as you start to grow your brand and, and you're starting to uh, you know, make uh, progress globally, inevitably, you, know, you start to run into issues with IP and with counterfeiting and intellectual property issues. What are some of the successful or steps that uh, you know, entrepreneurs need to be taking to protect their IP and to maintain their clients and, and uh, deal with some of these issues with counterfeiting? Yeah, so I mean, this is something I could talk about for days. Um, we've been yeah. through so much, um, uh, so many uh, uh, issues with, with, with IP and counterfeit. So obviously in the US, we had our trademarks and we had our copyright and we had all of that in place. Um, but what we didn't account for was that our brand was going to be counterfeited coming out of China. And what happened was, was um, it was our, our most popular trademark was actually trademarked in China by somebody else. And we didn't realize it. Mm. So it had been approved and they had used that approval to not only, you know, sell the products online, but to penetrate our distribution channels, which had a, which still has a huge impact on us. So um, protecting your brand by realizing that you, you know, if you're going to trademark your brand, uh, whether it's a service, a name, or you know, a brand name, uh, make sure that you're doing it. You know, at, at the very least in the USA, uh, get an EU trademark and get a Chinese trademark, um, because ultimately, if you have something that's worth copying, um, that's probably the country it's going to come from. Mm. Uh, so that that was one of our biggest mistakes and our biggest. We were able to overcome that. So we 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 sent investigators on the ground to find this individual, which they did find them. And this individual ended up essentially blackmailing us to sell us back the trademark. But we used that evidence in court, in trademark court, and uh, they overturned uh, the trademark and removed it from his possession um, because it was registered, uh, you know, with you know under what they call unfaithful means. Uh, so mm -hmm. he didn't have good intentions. So we've been able to since acquire that. Um, and it's helped us, um, you know, reduce the amount of counterfeits in the marketplace. But ultimately, as time goes on, and you're focusing in more countries, you have to extend your, your trademark rights in different countries. I mean, to, to do it across the world is, is a huge expense. So you can't obviously naturally do that unless you're in a position where um, you're ready to heavily invest in, 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 you know, multiple countries. But if you're just starting out, I think those three countries would be the perfect places to start. Absolutely, guys. So to unpack that again, you know, make sure you get your trademarks, everything set up IP-wise, intellectual property in the U.S., Europe, and of course, China, which is becoming a force, obviously, in the world of economics, <clears throat> for sure, manufacturing as well. Now, as a family-run and owned business, there's entrepreneurs out there that are in a family-run business, or they're maybe even thinking of starting one. You know, what are some of the factors that lead to success and challenges that you need to be aware of when you're trying to grow and scale a family-owned business? Um, look, I, I think um, it comes down to, you know, to personalities, really. I mean, fortunately for us, I'm, you know, I'm involved in, in the business with my two brothers. Um, and, you know, look, we're, we're empathetic uh, human beings. <laughs> so, I mean, that, sure. that, that, that works very well for us. 
Um, We're always, we always have the ability to put ourselves in each other's shoes in times where we might not be agreeing or, you know, there, there are certain things we're trying to navigate through. Um, But really, I I think, you know, what, what's vitally important is no matter how well, you know, you you get on as, as individuals, as brothers or sisters or family members, um, it's always good to just have an operating agreement put in place. Um, I think it protects the company. It protects everyone because there's a clear Mm. set of rules that are in place and things that need to be adhered to. And it just saves any, um, it saves any ambiguity or, or, you know, lack of clarity. So I, I, I think, you know, working in a family business, I would say that would be very integral to, to make sure that you have in place. It doesn't matter how big the business is. I mean, you can have a, you know, an attorney draw up, uh, you know, an operating agreement for, you know, a couple of thousand dollars. So, uh, but it, again, it, it's one of those things that keeps everyone in track with a clear mind and everyone knows exactly where, uh, everything stands. So um, aside from that, uh, I feel that, you know, look, I think working in a family business, it's vitally important to, you know, progress from a place of equality. Um, everyone brings something different to the table. Um, in some situations, somebody might have a bigger strength than somebody else. But ultimately, if you're leading from a place of equality, I think it makes it much easier to get things done. Um, because then there's, you know, it, it removes all of the I suppose all of the uh, the resistance there, if somebody feels like somebody's getting more than the next, um, you know, look, there, there's always an imbalance in the company. There's always going to be points where, you know, one family member is doing more than the other. And that, that it, it's, you know, it, it comes and goes. It's just the way it is. So I think just, you know, moving forward from a place of equality is another vitally important part of, of running a, a familiar business. Absolutely, guys. So keeping it equal. Put together that operating agreement, have it in writing. Verbally is not enough, leads to confusion. Put it in writing, very important. And then for a lot of our you know, physical product owners out there that are trying to grow and scale a business with a physical product, you know, what are some of the factors to consider when you're looking at manufacturing that product in-house versus contracting out? Like, What should you be looking at and, and how should that decision process work? Yes, I've been on both sides of that, uh, on that scale. You know, look, when the company first started and when I first got involved, um, you know, we were contract uh, manufacturing all of our products. I mean, there were our formulas. We developed them uh, in conjunction with the chemists that we had on the team, but um, we were having other companies making it for us. So we've been through the whole mill of, you know, ingredient changes without our knowledge, uh, lack of consistency in the production. Um, we, you know, the, the differences in between batches, which is totally noticeable to, you know, clients who have been using our products for years. So when you're working with a contract manufacturer, it's vitally important that you know you get clarity on number one um, what are their processes around manufacturing are they iso gmp certified um, are they adhering to you know the standard common practices of a manufacturer uh, and what what that what that entails uh, especially if it's a you know if it's a cosmetic product like ours um, you need to be you know brought up to date are there any ingredient changes that they need to make either for compliance or whether they're trying to sub one for the other to get their production date moved ahead um, by changing something as simple as a you know, as a preservative could have detrimental effects to somebody's health, you know, and, and if your label doesn't state that, you land yourself into a problem. So from a contract perspective, you just need to make sure that you're working with a, a very reputable um, and, and uh, you know, a, a very reliable uh, manufacturer. Now, we brought everything in house uh, and we, you know, we now are the manufacturer of not only our own products, but we do custom formulas for, you know, tons of different companies all over the world. And, 
Um, as part of that, we've taken the, the pitfalls that we've learned over the years and we plug those holes. So I think bringing it in-house, you get more control. You know that the product is made the same exact way every single time. Um, you know, we have our lab, like for example, I'm standing right over our lab now. And I know that, you know, today we have a bunch of testing going on with different products to make sure that the consistency is there. The challenge testing is there. Uh, stability testing is there. And no matter where in the world we send these products, it's going to hold up to the climate. So when a customer does receive them, there's never going to be any problems unless, you know, obviously it's stored maybe outside of the recommended conditions. So um, bringing it in-house gives you just a much a higher level of control. And I think ultimately it benefits, um, it benefits the, the, the reputation of the brand, but it does come with a lot of extra costs involved because you, you need a, you know, a specialized team to handle it. You know, you need chemists, you need, Q, you know, QC, you've got, um, you know, you've got compliance, uh, all of those things. So there is, there is an added cost, but I think ultimately the brand benefits and the company benefits from that. No question. Well, Ryan, we really appreciate you being a guest on the Seven Figures Club podcast today. A lot of value bombs that you have dropped on the audience. How can the audience connect from you, learn from you, and continue to take action towards following some of the, the secrets and strategies you've utilized to grow an international multi-seven-figure brand? Yeah, so look, we have social media uh, channels you know, across, say, Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram, all the typical ones. Um, my main hangout is usually on LinkedIn. Uh, so look, I mean, if, you know, if anyone wants to reach out or connect, that would be the place to do so. I, I'm not really too active on the other platforms. Um, but our website is prohairlabs.com. Um, so look, I mean, from a product perspective, you know, if there's ever, if there's anyone watching that has, is thinking about building a business or whatever, uh, in, in the cosmetic space or beauty or hair, um, you know, we, we, we're the, we're, we're the company to, you know, to, to connect with, but, um, when it comes to everything else, like, you know, knowledge and, you know, sharing advice and stuff, um, look, just simply reach out on LinkedIn and I'd be more than happy to answer any questions. Beautiful. Well, guys, that's Pro Hair Labs. What a great uh, website URL that is, Pro Hair Labs. Pretty easy, short to uh, remember. So check out Pro Hair Labs. I know we do have a lot of you know, beauty salon entrepreneurs on this podcast that we have helped also with, uh, with funding. So uh, you know, make sure you're, you uh, guys and gals that are in the industry reach out at ProHairLabs.com. And then it's uh, Ryan Margolin. That's M-A-R-G-O-L-I-N on LinkedIn. One of the few Ryan Margolines out there. So you should be able to connect up uh, with Ryan. And guys, LinkedIn, if you're not taking advantage of LinkedIn, it is one of the biggest opportunities, especially with you know B2B business where you can connect. People are open. They're active. It's a, it's a content uh, you know mecca right now where you can produce great content on LinkedIn and uh, get organic results without having to spend a fortune. So if you're not on LinkedIn, dominating, please begin to jump onto that and connect with Ryan there. Ryan, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. And the final word is yours, Ryan. What's your final piece of advice for someone trying to grow a business and, you know, struggling? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're struggling, you have to remember, you know, one of the key things that was said to me a long time ago is that, you know, the work always has to come you know, before the belief, like no one is going to believe in you or pat you on the back. So you got to be willing to do that to yourself for a period of time with the belief that, you know, you know, that better times are coming. 
you know, like you don't know when that last hurdle is going to be before you, you know, break through and make a difference. So um, just keep going and and don't look for anyone else's appraisal. Um, don't let people project their fears on you. You know, the people who tell you that can't, it can't be done or it shouldn't be done is usually them projecting their own thoughts on you. Just keep going. And um, yeah, that's that, that's really the only way that, that you're going to build anything of, of, of any substance, you know, just believe in it and, and, and just put in the work. Beautiful. Well said, guys. Take action. You have to put the work in. The more you work, the evidence will come. Your belief will increase. Don't let other people's fears, you know, get in the way. Don't let their limiting beliefs factor into you doing something that you know you can do. And Ryan, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thanks, Leo. Appreciate it. Are you looking for more seven-figure secrets, content, or even how you can launch your own recession-proof business? Then check out sevenfigures.com. That's the digit seven, F-I-G-U-R-E-S.com, where we share more videos, stories, strategies, funding solutions, entrepreneurial education, and even the secret business type that's recession-proof. Thank you for listening, and if you're finding value in our podcast, please give us a five-star and invite others to join the club.